So now may the words of my lips and the thoughts of all our hearts indeed be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, thank you very much uh, for your welcome. I've heard so much about St. Paul Somerville and indeed Somerville, so it's, um, it's very good to be here and um, you're living up to your name. I mean, it does seem to be summer outside. Um, and um, it was a shock, of course, um, arriving last night and discovering that we'd already lost one hour. <laughs> um, but I have managed to get up in time and to be with you. Um, I suspect, uh, Mike, that the 1045 service will be over-attended today. Um, well, it's, it's a daunting task to um, uh, preach on uh, this letter to the Philippians in the presence of Tyler, who's, the, who's masterminded this series um, and probably knows more about the letter to the Philippians than all of us put together by now. Uh, I know what it is to, to plan series and thank you for doing this because uh, this systematic study uh, and learning and teaching from God's Word is so important. Uh, otherwise, people go away with bits and pieces, verses or chapters, uh, gob gobbets, if you like, of Scripture, but they don't know what the flow of it is like. So this is a very wise move on the part of the leadership team to do this. Now, you've probably uh, heard already that um, uh, Paul knew the church at Philippi very well. You remember the great vision that he had when he was working in Asia of the man from Macedonia who was calling them over. Come over and help us. And that is how the gospel arrived in Europe, by the way. It was that decision of the missionaries to leave the work they were doing in Asia Minor and to cross over into Europe. And that was the beginning of uh, European Christian history, if you like. So Paul's arrival in Philippi uh, was momentous in terms of Christian mission. He planted the church there. He was the founder of that church, uh, in the human sense anyway. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that he visited that church uh, uh, many times, again and again. So he's talking to a church that he knows well, a church indeed that has been in partnership with him throughout his missionary work and its joys and its trials. He mentions that towards the end uh, of the letter as well as the beginning. But as you may have heard from Mike last week, um, the church was facing a number of challenges. And one of them was the threat to the unity of the church by those who were advocating false belief and therefore false practice from that false belief. You know, those two always hang together. False belief and misleading Christians into ways uh, that they should not be going in. And that was the case at Philippi. And 
that is why Paul is writing this letter. He is a prisoner. You've probably had the debate about where he was in prison. Um, there are two main candidates. He was either in prison uh, in Rome, the uh, imprisonment that is mentioned uh, at the end of the Acts of the Apostles, or it is uh, possible that he was actually in prison in Ephesus, which was somewhat nearer to Philippi, and some of the comings and goings that he mentions in the letter make sense if the place was nearer than Rome, which was quite far away. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He is writing as a prisoner uh, to encourage the church, uh, to appreciate the fellowship that he's had with them and has with them, uh, but also to warn them. Uh, and there's always this balance that Christian teachers need between the appreciation, uh, the positive uh, aff uh, affirming of where Christians and churches are, but the gospel is both judgment and salvation. And it is salvation because it is judgment. And that element is here. So that's how the second chapter begins. Uh, he wants to renew his ties with them. Uh, he loves them, but he's aware of the danger. And that is why the the very first word uh, in chapter 2 is a word of consequence. So, if there is, really meaning, as you know there is. And what is it that they should know? Any paraclesis in Christ, that is the word that is used here. Uh, you know this... Um, word uh, is related to the word for the Holy Spirit. What, what do we call the Holy Spirit? The paraclete. The paraclete, the one who comforts, encourages, and moves us on. That is what paraclete means. Not comfort in the nice, you know, be well fed and warm sense. That's not the comforting of the Holy Spirit. This the encouraging and the moving on. Prodding almost you could say. If there is any paraclesis in Christ, you see Jesus is a paraclete and the Holy Spirit is another paraclete. He says, I will ask the Father and he will send you another comforter, another encourager. Any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love. I was so glad that your translation said any incentive from Christ's love. Because this section is all about Christ, actually. It is all about God. Encouragement, paraclesis, uh, the love of Christ, any participation in the Spirit. Now, this could mean two things. Uh, this could mean how we participate in the life of the Holy Spirit. Or it could mean how we are all together uh, because we are all in the Holy Spirit. Why else should we be here for Sunday morning? I mean, plenty of other places to go to, but because we participate, we have a common life in the Spirit. Any affection I have, I've forgotten what your translation said, but... What this means is the movement of the bowels. 
not uh, in any uh, other sense, but the sense of compassion. Because in Hebrew thought, uh, compassion had to do with here, being moved here. And it is the word that is used about Jesus when it says, he had compassion on the crowds because uh, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you remember that? Sheep without a shepherd. Where are sheep today who haven't got true shepherds to look after them? You can be thankful that here in South Carolina you do, praise God. But that is what is meant by affection, that deep compassion that we can have for people because Christ has had compassion on us. And then it says any mercy, translated sympathy here, but any mercy and this is the mercy of God. You remember Paul saying in Romans 12, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. See, the mercy that we have known in our own forgiveness and the beginning of our own new life. That is the basis for his argument. So all of this is about God, it's all about Christ, it's all about the Spirit. And then it is all about us. Complete my joy being of the same mind, the same mind, the same love, in full accord, all that has to do with God's work in us, creating the same mind, the same love, one uh, being one in this accord. And how we are to behave uh, when this happens, not selfishness or conceit, but humility. I was so interested in this uh, gift shop do you call it, um, Mike, tea room and gift shop, that you will all be serving the people who come. That is only a sign, isn't it, of the humility to which we are called. Counting others better than ourselves. How difficult, that is very difficult for people to do, to think that there's someone better than us. You know, the, the sin of arrogance, is at the root of so many other sins in us. Even when it's not recognized, perhaps especially when it is not recognized. Arrogance and then there's selfishness. Always looking to ourselves, what is in, in this for us? Whether at work, with friends, in the family or even in church. So do not look after your own interests but the interests of others. What God has done for us, what we are to do for one another. And the basis for this, as Tyler was just saying, is having the mind of Christ. Now, this verse actually could mean a number of things. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So by being together in the company of the church, we have or we come to have the mind of Christ. It could mean that. It should mean that. But it could also be an exhortation. It could simply mean, 
have that way of thinking which Jesus had. As a church, as believers. And then there is, of course, this great hymn called Carmen Christi, uh, the hymn of Christ. Probably a hymn that existed already before St. Paul wrote this letter. Um, we can tell from its form, the words that are used, the ideas in it, that this is not something uh, very probably that Paul wrote himself, invented himself. I mean, Paul was capable of great heights of poetry. Can you think of one example? There's a very well-known example. It's 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? The, the great hymn of love. So he was capable of it. But there are things here that are very early, very primitive if you like, and uh, those people who say that this is a hymn that already was used in the church that Paul is simply now pressing into service, they're probably right. The hymn of Christ. Philippians was written, what, um, around the year 60. And if this hymn existed already, then this is a very early declaration of Christian belief, of what Christians believed about Jesus Christ already, well before the year 60. This is the remarkable thing about this hymn. And uh, you can see uh, how much is said here. So it says about him that we should have this mind which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, in the form of God. You know, in the letter to the Hebrews, it says that he bore the very stamp of the nature of God, the very stamp of his being. And in Colossians, it says he is the image of the invisible God. The word icon is used, by the way. Um, I was asking Mike if there were any icons around, and he he said there are some in the parish hall. So uh, go and have a look at them. That is what, Je what is said about Jesus in Colossians 1.15. He is the icon of God. So by looking at him, we can tell what God is like. That, that is what it means. He was in the form of God. And yet he did not cling on to equality with God. He could have done. He was just as God is, but he did not cling on, to, he did not think it a robbery to cling on to equality uh, with God. He did not um, uh, think that he should uh, do this, continue to do this, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, actually it says, uh, the translations often soften it, uh, bond servant, one of them has. I don't know, what did we have this morning? You? Servant. servant, was it? Yes. Well, it says he took the form of a slave. Now, um, this word emptying himself, of what did he empty himself? 
divine being full of glory and honor, of omnipotence, of uh, omniscience, of knowing everything, of being able to do everything, what did he give up? What did Jesus give up in being born as a baby? You know, uh, we were with uh, Lydia last night, um, beautiful baby, uh, but uh, as um, uh, Linnea was uh, holding her, the one thing that was obvious was the helplessness of the baby, wasn't it? How helpless babies are. Well, that's the extent of the self-emptying. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Well, uh, this could simply be, of course, about the humility and the giving up, but I think it also refers to the servant of God found in the Old Testament. You know those great servant songs about God's servant who is to fulfill God's purposes through his suffering and thus be glorified. I find it difficult to believe that anyone could read Isaiah chapter 53 uh, and not come to the conclusion that this is an explicit prophecy about Jesus Christ. I mean, what else do you want? That is what it means here. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, of being entirely at God's disposal. Now, it says here, being born in the likeness of men. And uh, in case that is misunderstood, uh, Paul immediately qualifies this and says, but he was found and being found as a human being. So this was not just make-believe. You know, there was an old heresy in the early church that Jesus just looked like a man, but wasn't really. He was, he became human, I think we can say, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You see, so you have, uh, if you like, uh, his pre-existent uh, glory. This is before the year 60. I mean, this hymn probably had existed already for 10, 15 years before Paul used it here. His pre-existent glory, his giving up of that glory and his humility and his humiliation, he became obedient to death, to the shameful death on a cross. The Jews thought on the basis of scripture that anyone crucified was cursed. And Roman writers writing about the cross say, God forbid that a Roman citizen should even see this punishment being meted out. It was such a disgraceful and painful uh, way of dying. That is the extent, if you like, of the humbling, the humiliation, the self-emptying. Pre-existent glory, humbling, humiliation, and then the exaltation. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him. Highly exalted him. Tyler and I were discussing yesterday whether this meant resurrection and ascension or did it mean only resurrection or did it only mean ascension? Well, actually, I think it means both, doesn't it? Because the resurrection and the ascension belong to that glorification by God of, of Jesus Christ because of his humility. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. You see, what name is it that is above every name? Uh, from which all other names come, to which they owe their existence, if you like. Which name? And then he makes it clear, he says, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. This is said in Isaiah about God. Every knee shall bow to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this is the amazing thing about Jesus in the New Testament that without self-consciousness the New Testament writers ascribe all of these things that are said about God in the Old Testament to Jesus. It's not particular titles that are used, though of course, as I was just saying, they are used, but it's this almost unself-conscious use throughout the New Testament of what is said about Yahweh, the God of Israel, to Jesus. Astonishing. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is to say the totality of creation submits to Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians that it was part of God's plan to bring everything to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the old, the oldest Christian confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue. Uh, yesterday, we had uh, that reading uh, from the book of the Revelation, or was it the day before yesterday, at Diocesan Convention, uh, where a multitude that no one could number, from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the incentive to the church's missionary work to participate in God's purpose to bring everything to fulfillment in Christ. So Paul then returns to his concern for the Philippian church. Because we need to have this mind, which is the mind of Christ, what does that mean for us then? And first of all, we might say, what does it mean for us personally as Christians? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. 
in the psalm that we've just heard, Psalm 19, it talks about the fear of the Lord. There is a proper fear of the Lord. Uh, Christians sometimes become over familiar with God, don't they? Uh, uh, we think he is our buddy. Um, and that's not bad. I mean, you know, we, we do need to have a close personal relationship uh, with God, our Father, and with Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, there is a proper fear of the Lord. Your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, the Bible speaks of salvation as a past event, something that needs to have happened in every life. You have been saved, says Paul in Timothy and in Titus. You have been saved. That is a past reality by God's gracious work, nothing by uh, what we have done ourselves. And here is the present. We have been saved, but we are to become what we are. We are to become what we are, to work out our own salvation, what this means in our lives. But then there is also the future reality, the fulfillment of God's saving purpose in our lives. Uh, however God is to do this. We've just prayed for our brother and anointed him. And we are praying, aren't we, that uh, the salvation that he has, that salvation will come to fruition, to fulfillment. Anyone who confesses with his lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. So there are these three aspects to salvation for us as persons. But here Paul is also talking about the salvation of the church. You see? He's constantly got in mind how this church at Philippi has got to be saved. Uh, many churches, as churches, are going helter-skelter on the road to uh, damnation. Because of false teaching, because of the lack of God's word in their midst, um, because of uh, the toleration of evil, because of injustice and oppression, all of these things. We see this around us, don't we, uh, today. Paul is saying, no. Philippi is a church that has been saved. The Lord wants to save the church of Philippi, therefore work this out in your daily living. Work out your own salvation as a church And this is possible, of course, because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Becomes possible only and only insofar as we let God work in our churches, bringing us to repentance, renewal, fulfillment.
the sort of church that uh, he wants Philippi to be, and no doubt St. Paul Somerville uh, also to be, is a church that can stand out in a crooked and perverse generation as a light in the world. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This will be more and more um, the case, I believe, uh, as the darkness increases around us. Christians will be called to be more and more lights. Personally, the Christian home and the Christian church, so that people are attracted from the darkness to the light. The light is not to be hidden. You know, Jesus said, didn't he, you don't light uh, a lamp and then put it under your bed. You put it on a lampstand where everyone can see it. And that is what is necessary uh, for the church. That's the kind of church he wants uh, Philippi to be and it becomes that church by holding fast to the word of life. So that the word of God, which is living and active, uh, can work in us and make us that kind of church, which is a light uh, in the world around us. And then finally in this passage, there is something about those who minister in the church. Paul is always conscious of those who are his fellow ministers. He mentions later on, immediately after this passage, Timothy uh, and Epaphroditus um, and many others later on in the letter. What about them? What about his own ministry in the church? He says he is ready to be poured out as a libation upon the sacrifice of the faith of the Philippian church. You know, Christians are called to offer sacrifice, aren't they? Offer up your body, says Paul in Romans, as a reasonable and living sacrifice. We are called to offer up our goods, our possessions, our money, our talent as a sacrifice in Hebrews 13. Um, we are called... Um, to hospitality, to service as sacrifice. Of course, this sacrifice is only possible because of the one sufficient, true sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know, our sacrifice only becomes possible because of that sacrifice. And we are told in the letter to the Hebrews that we are to join our sacrifices with that sacrifice so that it may become acceptable to God. Uh, when we come now to celebrate the Supper of the Lord, Holy Communion, that may be the right time for you to bring your sacrifice to Christ. Whatever that may be, whatever God is calling you um, to sacrifice, knowing that it is acceptable to God because of that one 
sufficient sacrifice of Christ which we celebrate in this great sacrament. But, this is the final point, Christian ministers, deacons, priests, bishops are called themselves to make a sacrifice so that the sacrifice of their people may become possible. That is their sacrifice, to make the sacrifice of their people possible and joined together so that it may be acceptable to God with the sacrifice of Christ. Whatever the work of ministry, teaching, presiding at the sacraments, uh, bringing people to faith in Christ, uh, your gift shop and kitchen, whatever it is, this ministry is a sacrifice to help with the sacrifices of the faithful. That is how Paul saw himself in Romans 15. He speaks of his apostolic ministry as a priestly ministry so that the sacrifices of the nations may be acceptable to God. What a high view of Christian ministry this is. But it's also a biblical view. And it is a teaching that has to do with the building up of the church. Build your church, Lord. That is Paul's prayer for this church that he has planted. And it should be ours. Now to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, be all might, majesty, honor and dominion now and forever.